Hi, welcome uh, to the what is now the official launch um, of Africa's a Country Talk. Um, I'm Sean Jacobs. I'm the editor of Africa's a Country, and my guest host is Will. Well, I don't know why he's not my guest host. Sorry, he's my co-host. Oops, that's our first bloop, blooper of the day. My co-host is Will Shoki, who is our staff writer. So on that note, Will, after I made a blooper, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm 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 sad you didn't announce my most important role, which is as your as your translator. I mean, I don't get to do it often, but it's it's the one I care about the most. Um, but I'm good. How are you, Sean? I'm good. I mean, like before the show, when we were just sort of chatting around about how people are living in this new environment, I'm living in what is basically a political, economic, social, ecological, and health crisis all at once in the United States. I'm not sure how I can say. I don't know what to say about it. It's it's. Kind I of mean, the question is who who isn't living in living in like a political, ecological, social, economic, every word ending in IC crisis at this time. Uh, I mean, we're it's the same here in in South Africa. I'm in Johannesburg right now. I mean, things are getting better. It's getting warmer. People are feeling a bit festive. But the truth is, we're only really starting to understand how bad things got and how bad things are starting to get now. So, yeah. There's that. Yeah, it's more like the sense of this. Well, there was a myth about this country. I didn't believe the myth, but somehow, I think you were sort of like, okay, there's a bit of the the myth of like how the system works here, and it turns out nothing works. That they weren't prepared for like the health crisis. Like currently, like big parts of the West Coast are on fire. You know what I'm saying? Like they, those are the things um, that the system is falling apart that the political leaders are absent or just terrible, um, and that the opposition to that movement, which during the summer, which is the you know, the winter in the Southern Hemisphere, mm. um, during the summer, there were all these protests um, around police brutality, but then kind of morphed into sort of larger demands around, you know, defunding, if you want, going beyond reforming the police, like something more substantive. People were clamoring for something substantive. And what we got instead is, uh, we we getting this Joe sort of Biden. Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. Um, so yeah, so maybe uh, maybe today's program will get me out of out of uh, out of my uh, funk as as I as Help I me. as we continue. In any way, um, in any case, before we go on, because we want to talk, um, we have a, we have a great program ahead with some great guests. But before we do it, I think let me just quickly remind people of a couple of things. You can follow us on our on our website, africasacountry.com. You can follow us on Twitter, which is just Africa's a country, on Facebook. Um, and you can follow us, yeah, and you can follow the program every week. Also, we have a Patreon, finally, uh, where you can give us your money, which is uh, this, this Patreon forward slash um, Africa's a country. Um, and actually, we've come up with something there where we hand out, we hand out like uh, citizenship. So we hand out visitors. We're starting our own country. <laughs> We're starting our own country, handing out visitors. Africa is a country. <laughs> uh, permanent residency permits. And for like people who want to give us a lot of money, we give ambassadorships, which is also not to make too light of that because there have been people who have sold ambassadorships. In general, actually, to become an ambassador in much of the first world, actually, what you do is you give, you give donations to whoever's a political candidate running for office. And when it's done, I think you get rewarded um, with ambassadorships, but that's not what's going to happen here. We just want you to give our money, and we're just trying to be um, uh, trying to be um, uh, creative. One last thing is, some of you were watching us in July and the early part of August 
we'll be like, hold on, what are you guys saying? Like, this is the official um, launch of Africa as a country's live uh, African country talk. What do you mean? I've been I've been watching all these shows, and you had all these guests on. You know, Omar Ba, Samar Belusi, Wangui um, Kamari. Uh, what happened? Like, why are you saying this is a new program? That was what we call our beta phase because we we're testing things out. And like, finally, we are now here to say like, hey, we have a show. We're ready. Um, come and watch us uh, every week at this time, 12 p.m. Myself and Will. Um, and maybe occasionally we might bring in um, a, another guest host. So for today's program, um, before, before, just to give you kind of a flavor, we have three guests today. We have Dan Magaziner, who is a historian of South Africa. Um, and he has written a lot of books, and we we'll later will introduce him properly. He has written some books, uh, um, particularly on the period uh, during apartheid on black people's lives. Um, and Alex Hodge and uh, Patani Madrivandila, who are two South African graduate students who were heavily involved in uh, Fismas Fall um, and Roses Fall. And we'll introduce them later as um, as they come on the show. But first up, um, uh, Will, what's what's been newsworthy? What's been in the news? Uh, you know, the news cycle is, is just so intense, uh, so frenetic. Um, but I think the, the story that dominated the timeline in South Africa, at least last week, was the whole debacle at, at Clicks. So basically, to talk a little bit about that, uh, the Economic Freedom Fighters, which is South Africa's third largest party, um, and the only party who, over the past couple of years, has demonstrated steady growth in elections and is a fairly new party. I mean, they only started in, in 2013 and have only contested two elections. But but anyway, we'll get into a little bit of their history now as, as quickly as we can. But uh, Clicks, which is this massive South African uh, pharmaceutical retailer, uh, its only rival is another one called Discam. They put up this racist ad on their website, which effectively had the series of photos comparing white women's hair and black women's hair. And white women's hair was, you know, neat and normal and black women's hair was dull and frizzy. And this was an ad for uh, a hair care product called Tresemme, which is uh, part of Unilever, this American giant in pharmaceuticals and skin and lifestyle products. So this ad went out and of course it caused outrage as it should be. Um, hair is a sensitive issue in South Africa, especially um, in, in 2016, there was this, this, right. this wide set of protests when uh, high school kids were, were protesting against the uniform policies at their schools, which had all of these restrictions on the hair of, of black students, but white students were left untouched. So, you know, this outrage happens and then the, the EFF makes uh, a mountain of a lot of it. And they basically send out an instruction to all of their members to go to click stores across the country and they do to protest. Via Twitter, right? via Twitter. They do this by Twitter, like Julius Malema, who's the, who's the commander in chief of the EFF, literally just sends out, an, sends out an order. It's like, ground forces, you know what to do? Go do it, right? Um, and this happens over the next few days, and it ends up being polarizing, as, as everything the EFF touches ends up being. But I think it's interesting because it was it, it caused a moment for reflection, which is on the question of, you know, what exactly is the EFF? What is their role in contemporary South African politics? And what exactly do they want for the country? Because, you know, you can see in, in, 
in your screen right now, there's the gentleman wearing the EFF t-shirt, which says our land and jobs now. So to most people, the EFF is this really radical party. They wear red, which is the color of the left universally. Um, as they began as a political party, they were birthed out of the Marikana moment in South Africa. So in 2012, when 34 miners were brutally murdered by the South African police for protesting for a living wage. And that was commemorated in South Africa not so long ago. In fact, tomorrow will be exactly a month since the eighth year anniversary. And they went into parliament. They wore the outfits of domestic workers and gardeners and all of these working class occupations. Uh, and they have these big sort of policies that they call for which are traditionally the policies of the left, people think. So nationalization of the mines, of the banking sector, uh, land expropriation without compensation, and so on. But there are very, they're, they're loaded with, with quite a lot of contradictions. I mean, the first one is its origin story, which is this guy, Julius Malema, who was formerly the president of the ANC Youth League right. and then got expelled after a fallout with the party um, and back then he was this larger than life, still is this larger than life personality, uh, this lavish personality, um, had a very extravagant lifestyle. Um, and that's still a trademark of a lot of the high profile members of the EFF. Um, but despite that, they were saying they're, they're a new working class party and they want to they wanna promote a, a left wing populism in the country. But over the course of the years, uh, there's a lot to question about whether or not they are credibly left-wing. Uh, and there's so much to say on this, but uh, for starters, I think I think this moment with, with Clicks was just a case in point. The reason is that, well, six months ago, Clicks was a pharmaceutical company that was apparently forcing its workers to work and not paying them. That was fixing the prices of their products as a lockdown began. And like this a, caused yeah, basically in a sort of cartel. Yeah, style. basically in a cartel yeah. sort of way. And they're, they're not yeah. the only company, you know, Discam, a whole bunch of other companies were engaging in the same behavior. But as the lockdown began, as it became clear to a lot of these corporations that their profit maximizing capacity was going to be limited, they tried to redirect the economic burden of the crisis to workers. Um, and not a sniff from the EFF. Uh, and then six months later, this thing happens. And that's the thing that awakens them from their slumber, right? There's been six months of deepening hunger crises, of communities undergoing water stress, of communities being without the requisite things they need to, to live, a massive mobilization across civil society to ensure that the state provides them with basic support. And the EFF completely absent from that, right? The most they've been doing was they had this like book club uh, they were reading some great books, uh, you know, the classic titles of the left. They were reading Fanon, Rodney, um, a whole bunch of awesome texts, but they were really doing nothing. I mean, in the beginning, they were saying that uh, people who have COVID should be quarantined on, on Robben Island, right? Uh, which is this, this offshore prison, famous for imprisoning South Africa's apartheid leaders. So the EFF, this party with so many contradictions, and no one's, I mean, no one's really done a sort of systematic... Uh, analysis of their politics, what people reach for instantaneously all the time is to just call them fascist, right? They're like, ah, they're fascist because their tactics are violent, their posture is very masculinist. Um, but I don't know if I agree with that because I just think that, um, I don't know, fascism's just become well, too much. Record, the other thing is that their record, apart from the things that you mentioned, they've done a whole bunch of other things that that 
kind of captured the imagination in South Africa, right? They yeah, and to their credit, one of yeah, I mean, one of that was was defending South African democracy, right? They were the opposition to Jacob Zuma. My kid, my kid, uh, my kid used to make fun of me for you know while I'm folding clothes or something. I've got YouTube on, and one of those, my Af I think the one channel is called My Africa, and they have all the these like clips from the South African Parliament. And my my you know my kids, they were just my ten year old would just walk in and be like, "Is it point of order again?" shouting <laughs> <laughs> yeah, point of order, delegitimizing um, Jacob Zuma. So you know, like you're right, defending democracy. They were they way more than the ANC undermined like the Zuma project. I mean, it would corrupt yeah. political projects. So it's like empty with empty rhetoric about radical economic transformation. So the EFF did a lot to point out the contradictions of that project. And I would say it's mostly like their public pressure, not necessarily through mass marches, but using media. When you're sort of saying like the, the use of Twitter to get people to get out there, um, that did a lot to like undermine that project of Zuma. So it's not, yeah. like, and, and secondly, there's tons of people who are, who invested their energies in the in the EFF. Ordinary people, who were disappointed, disillusioned with the ANC's project, right? And so they began to put their energies with the EFF. So they saw the, as you said, land jobs. That's what they thought of the EFF. They didn't think, oh, the EFF is now like, which is another movement in South Africa called Black First, Land First, who I think did does most of these stunts that the EFF does. This kind of turning up at a store, uh, harassing shoppers. You know, making like that—that that that's now politics. I mean, that's part of, that's where where the, where 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 the the contradictions or the ambivalence come in around the EFF, right? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, instead of just uh, lazily reaching out for the the fascist allegation, I think the easy thing to do is to say, well, this political party is committed ostensibly to this program. Are they are they actually realizing it, right? And I think that the fact of the matter is, just purely on an empirical basis, if you look at the EFF's activities since their inception in 2013. They've done almost next to nothing to contribute to, to really building the working class movement in the country that they they apparently want to build, right? Most of what they're doing is this kind of empty, radical posturing, largely on social media, but really not doing much to, to build that working class politics. They don't have uh, trade union affiliation. They, they flirted with with AMCU at some stage, which is this right. massive mine workers union. But otherwise, they don't have any, any moorings in the organized working class in the country. And I think that's a much more, much more direct line of critique that gets at the core of, of trying to distill exactly what their, their class project is, right? Because I think, you know, once you start thinking about that, you start to realize that there really doesn't seem to be much distinguishing the EFF from, from the ANC, you know, a joke... A lot of a lot of comrades make to me is that uh, the EFF is just is just the the youth league of the ANC at this stage, um, and that's why the, the youth league version of it. The like active yeah, version yeah the, the active version of the of the yeah. youth league. And, and just I mean, one last other quick point about them: it, whenever they've had a chance to kind of upend electoral politics in South Africa, in those places mm -hmm. where they would play like the power broker. They've gone and like made alliances with the Democratic Alliance, which for people who are not South African. This is a right-wing political party that is very defensive in its protection of, I mean, for want of a better word, white privilege. So it's like, and and who does who's like the ANC? I think in in its rhetorical style, pretend that it's not going to implement sort of harsh neoliberal edicts. 
the, the, the DA doesn't even care. And so the EFF that says that it's the party of workers goes and makes an alliance with this party, famously with Herman Mashaba. And it's a great article on the website, which we, which we can recommend by Anthony Johnson um, on kind of Herman Mashaba's latest political project, which is he now wants to run for president. But when he was mayor of Johannesburg, the EFF was his ally. I mean, in any case, yeah. Anyway, we, we could get carried away and talk about the EFF all day, but we just, you know, see, this is what happens when you when you talk about politics, but yeah. So just, I'm Sean Jacobs, for those who just tuned in, this is Walt Shoki, we're co-hosting. Like, I don't know, we're throwing up signs now. Um, I saw that John Wall, the basketball player, had to apologize because he threw up like blood signs or something in the last week. So I'm Ooh, not trying okay. I just threw up a peace sign to clarify. Yeah, this. Peace sign. But peace in any sign. case, um, I think what we want to do now is we want to we want to go to our first um, guest. And before I introduce him, um, before I introduce him, um, so today's program, what we we uh, September twelfth, which is three days ago, is uh, sorry, um, is actually the anniversary of Steve Biko's death. Steve Biko, if you don't know, well, I don't know most people know him. You've heard the song Biko by Peter Gabriel probably at some point or you've seen the film um, Cry the Beloved Country, and arguably uh, next to the Mandela's, um, uh, the Thule, I would say, Steve Biko is sort of like a, you know, a prominent figure of the, in the 20th century in South Africa and defining in his person, but also as a leader of like a political movement, which was the Black Consciousness Movement, a very short, short-lived life. He was 31 years old when he was murdered um, in 1977. Um, but he led this political movement that sort of roughly started at the end of the 1960s um, until his his, uh, his death. During that period, there was um, a series of national strikes in South Africa in the early 1970s, um, and later on, uh, culminating by the by the mid 70s with the Soweto uprising. And in a way, uh, Biko's leadership of this movement and this movement itself, I think, transformed South African politics in many ways to the extent that Biko is resurfacing in South Afri African politics um, right now, like in the, particularly from 2015 to 2017, um, and in some of the rhetoric, some of the ways that people are critiquing um, the, the post-apartheid order. So what we did today is we brought in three guests. Um, first up, we're gonna talk to uh, Dan Magaziner. Let me introduce Dan. Uh, um, uh, Dan is a historian. He's the um, author of the book, um, The Law and the Prophets. Black Consciousness in, in South Africa, 1968 to 1977, which was published by Ohio University Press in 2010. Um, Dan also wrote a post which, about Biko, which we can recommend if you for, in, as a companion for today's um, uh, podcast or live stream, sorry, which is called We Write What We Like About Steve Biko. Um, and you can find that on Africa as a Country. And bonus point uh, for Dan, he's also an editorial board member of Africa as a Country, um, while in his day job, he's a professor of history at Yale. His most recent book, just to like, you know, give him some free advertising, is called The Art of Life in South Africa um, 2016. Again, this is all punting for Africa's country. I interviewed Dan about this book, and you can go read it. Great book, actually, about black artists uh, under apartheid, about that complication of people working within these kind of segregated school system while being artists in, uh, in, in black artists in South Africa in the 20th century. Um, currently, Dan is working on two books um, in, in which I would say Black Consciousness have starring roles or it's in the background. One of them is a book called Available Light, Race, Art and the Struggle with Change in South Africa, which is a biography of the South African photographer Omar uh, Bacha. Um, again, I'd rec you know, 
definitely go look at Omar Butts' work when you have a moment. And the second book, which I know Dan was working before he started working on the Omar Butts book, is a book called uh, World Man from Africa, Selvia Mbuzi and the Future, which is about a South African painter, sculptor, um, theorist and designer, and tracing this man's history. Um, uh, an interesting, I don't want to give away, but this, this guy's a very interesting figure because most South African political figures um, are quite parochial. Uh, this man actually went into the world, Selvin Booz. And I know Dan's spoken to me a lot about this guy. So to start Dan off and for me to shut up, let me ask, <laughs> let me ask just, just by introduction, Dan. So as I was saying, when I was, when I was setting things up in the 20th century, when you think of South Africa, you think the Mandelas, you think Latuli, you think Biko. Can you just, for the benefit of our viewers, just place Biko and black consciousness within sort of South African political history, like the contribution of BC, like broadly, how would you define it? So thank you, first of all, to Sean and Will for having me. Um, I could have listened to you guys talk about the EFF and clicks all day. Um, I'm sorry to the viewers who now have to switch gears to this different conversation. Um, so that when we talk about Biko and black consciousness, I think that it's really important to, to note the difference perhaps between their existence in history, which is to say how Biko and black consciousness emerge at a particular moment in South African history versus their existence in popular memory. Cause there's a great disconnect there. One of the things that's so striking about the association of Biko with people of such fame and renown as Nelson Mandela is that Mandela was well known and famous for pretty much most of his political life. Of course, he becomes much more so after, after the 50s and after Ravonia and during the efforts of the global anti-apartheid movement. Um, Biko, though, was came from a very different sort of setting. He was not nearly as well known uh, during the first years of his political activity when he was a medical student at the uh, University of Natal, what was then called the University of Natal non-European section. Um, later, the University of Natal Black section, which was the medical school for the people then known as non-Europeans or non-whites in South Africa. Um, he emerges in the late 60s as the first president of the South African Students Organization, which in time becomes the kind of cradle of the broader Black consciousness movement. And he emerges as one of its, and I straight, and I need to stress one of that new organization's most eloquent and important spokespeople, but not the only one. Um, he has this column in the Sasso newsletter that begins to be published in the early in early 1970, and the column called "I Write What I What I Like," which becomes his platform for disseminating a lot of the ideas of Black consciousness. Um, he so. He is represents a figure who kind of comes from nowhere versus a Mandela who's an established figure brought up in the sort of leader, uh, in the leading uh, parts of his community and is always flirting with great fame. Biko is not, uh, which pivots to why he's so known in popular memory. And to some extent, it's because of the anniversary that just passed. Biko's moment of most clear international fame and renown, ironically and quite sadly, comes um, with his death. That moment, because after the Soweto uprising in June 76, had refocused a lot of international attention on South Africa. And as international news reporters and some 
progressive politicians found their way into South Africa, they began to interact with Biko and Biko developed a better known network uh, internationally. So when he was murdered by the government in September, 1977, it created an almost immediate furor internationally. This was big news and his persona became larger in life and was in many senses separate from what had been his political existence. During the preceding years, Biko was banned in 1973 to his home in King Williamstown, and he had worked as a community organizer on a number of kind of lower level, or I should say lower level, but small scale community development projects. Um, he was not all that well known nationally in South Africa, but after his death, he's, his fame skyrockets. And the symbol of Biko, which is very different than the person of Biko, I think, the symbol of Biko gains purchase in both the South African and the global imagination. Now, one of the one of the things about your is that you're you wrestling with like where, how did black consciousness come to be, and the sort of conventional argument often is that the the BC activists are picking up on ideas that are filtering around in the world: civil rights, black power, Fanon, etc. You suggest that that might be the case but that there's also something else more local that's driving the emergence of black consciousness, right? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one thing that's really important to understand in across the broad sweep of 19th and 20th century South African history is that political movements are always constructed by thinkers who are conversant in their local context and in international affairs. South Africa is never apart from broader international trends. Black consciousness is exemplary here because it uses a lot of symbols, the, the clenched right fist, for example, the very term black, a lot of the dress that black consciousness advocates uh, adopt. It uses symbols that are refracted from the black power movement in the United States, the influence of groups like the Panthers, musicians like James Brown and so on. Um, but its ideas, although reminiscent of that sort of international influence, its ideas are also very profoundly and um, very profoundly South African. And they stretch back to previous moments in South African political history. And I can just name just a couple of these. Um, Biko, for example, is influenced greatly by his older brother, who was a member of the PAC. And a lot of Biko's thinking about blackness and about the possibility of what Biko calls true humanity that exists on the other side of the struggle against apartheid. A lot of that thinking, you can see the influence of someone like a Robert Sabukwe in thinking about what it means to be an African, what it means to be someone who is thinking through the, the political commitments of being towards progress in South Africa. You can see the influence of someone like a Limbede and then you can even go further than that because Biko talks about and cites people like Sekou Torre. He, he traffics in ideas familiar from people like Leopold Senghor. His notions of a, what can be defined as a kind of lived Christian commitment at the heart of political, of political life are very reminiscent of Kaunda's version of African humanism. So there's a lot there. There's a ways in which they're always adopting ideas and filtering them through the context of South Africa's more recent history and mm -hmm. their own understanding of South African political traditions. Mm. So I think, yeah, that's, I, I like this, this framing of, of, of understanding Biko as he existed in history. What, 
what I'm curious to know is when you talk about a lot of these intellectual inspirations that he had, what is it about that moment in South African history that provides fertile ground for these ideas to be to be rejuvenated and to be developed, speaking to that context. So I think, you know, the immediate explanation one could provide is that uh, it was the period after which the ANC and South Africa's dominant political organizations were banned, most of their leaders scattered into hiding, and the ANC really wasn't the, the main political force in that period. But what else explains the reason why those ideas could prove to be so resonant with people at that time. Were they disappointed in what the ANC and its affiliated organizations were providing just before, or was it something else? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good question, and you've already given part of the answer, which is the timing mattered so much. In my book on Black Consciousness, I, I talk about it as being after Sharpeville, and I think that's a really critical context because it's after a moment when there had been a pivot towards mass resistance that had endured tremendous political repression, um, including the murders at Sharpeville. And then there had been the move towards an armed struggle that had also endured tremendous political repression. And so over the course of the 1960s, a lot of the political impetus in South Africa is focused on multiracial organizations like the Liberal Party, and especially the National Union of South African Students. And so when we talk about black consciousness, we begin with student politics because this small number, and it was a very small number of tertiary uh, students in South Africa's universities who were people of African, Indian, and colored descent, they find themselves in a situation where they are, they know that they are representatives of the majority of the South African population, the vast majority. But within student politics, they are dominated by these white liberals. And so the space that that's left for politics is a space where they can operate and generate critiques that gain increasing purchase because people are like, I don't know where your guys' policy is on, on cursing on Africa's a country television. Oh, so man. I won't curse. All right. I mean, they're like, what the fuck is happening here? This is this is not what we this is not right. And so they can push against the the dominance of white liberals. And here's another thing that makes it really interesting and what helps to actually allow black consciousness to build up momentum. Because so doing, the government initially is like, those are our boys right there. Because they are saying it's wrong that there's multiracial organization exists, right? They say instead, what you're doing, which is saying black people should have their own organization separate from the domination of white liberals, right? The government is saying that's exactly what we've been saying forever. Why won't you people listen to us? And so when BC and when Sasso in particular emerges as a separate organization that is broken away from the multiracial National Union of South African Students, the government initially applauds it, which means for a critical year or so, South Africa, the Sasso is able to organize and generate sort of political energy and find unanimity and agreement across the country with black students without the government getting in their way. And it's only in like 1971 that the government begins to get wise to the threat that black consciousness represents. And repression follows very quickly from 72, then through the bannings in 73, the murder of, of, of Ahopozi Tiro in 74, 
and then of course culminating in in Biko's murder in seventy seven, and then the uh, the banning of all of this first generation of Black consciousness organizations a month later. Um, so that that's part of it. The other part of it was that as most people probably know, the late 1960s were a truly restive period in across the world. And although South Africa had a censored, was a, a state where censor, state censorship was a really big deal, um, a lot of ideas this couldn't be censored. You're talking about what's happening in the Vietnam War. You're talking about what's happening in the college campuses in France. You're talking about what's happening in Czechoslovakia. This stuff is getting covered in the South African press. And these young people are reading that. And they're helping to think about themselves and their circumstances in light of what appears to be a generational shift and a generational conflict occurring globally. And so they begin to think of their own experiences in light of that and think about how they can't, they don't need to be beholden to the political practices and thinking of their elders, although they do learn from those people. And that instead they have the authority as young people to act. They have the authority to develop their own concepts and ideas. And since the government kind of lets them do it for a while, these ideas really spread so much so that when the government finally takes notice in 72, when they um, have this same man, Tiro, kicked out of the University of the North for a political statement that he makes at a, uh, a public address at the university, Sasso is able to pull off a nationwide strike of all black college students. The government's not, doesn't, hasn't really thought that they were capable of, but here they are. They've organized this community. So there's a generational thing, and then there's also the opportunistic element of it, which is the government thought this was in keeping with apartheid because it talked about a language of racial separation. Just to sort of connect to that, like, um, and I want to ask about, in, I don't know, this is kind of hindsight. When you judge that period, 68, 77, or 71, 77, um, you mentioned there's like a national strike happening. There's this kind of ambivalence of the state towards them. How does one you know, apart from consciousness, if, if if you look back at BC and what can and, and I know there was a '73 strike, '76 mm -hmm. with the with the um, the Soweto uprising. How does one judge be what BC act like beyond consciousness building? Like, what are the tangibles that people can say BC? See, I got. I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt you there EFF. because why? No, I'm gonna put you on the spot here. We talked earlier about EFF and we're asking like, what did EFF? What's EFF yeah. really doing? Could and I? Could I? Uh, yeah. Okay, add, add something. Can I jump yeah. in there? I mean, it's, it's almost like a question of uh, what political form almost was it trying to aspire to? What political or organizational form? Uh, was it just this phase of mass ideation, consciousness building, as Sean said? Or was it preparing to be something concrete that people could take forward as a vehicle for future struggle? And could it take it? Could it take that stuff off the campuses? Because we're going to get to that kind of thing also mm. later. Could it? Mm. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to push against you because I think that consciousness is and consciousness raising. It shouldn't be seen that consciousness raising is separate from politics. Consciousness raising is politics. And so the great achievement of Black consciousness during this period is that Black consciousness. I'll get a little philosophical to it, but a little philosophical about it. But it spurred a generation of people to think of themselves and their position in South Africa differently. 
And its conviction was, and I hear I think it was proved correct, that if you think of yourself and the capacity of your own individual self for action, and you make a decision positively to claim a black identity, and it's it's black identity was not about race necessarily so much as it was about politics, about one's commitment and saying that one was determined not to accept the status quo in South Africa. That is incredibly powerful politics because what it does is it tells people that their engagement and their kind of how they stand in relation to the moment that they find themselves is, is dynamic, that they can affect change at the moment when they raise their consciousness. And so initially consciousness raising is the plan. Now there is this sense that in politics, they're always, and especially in South Africa, you have to have like enumerated 10 point programs and things. You gotta have this idea that we are then gonna do this and then we're gonna do that. And you kind of look in vain in early BC for that sort of stuff. Um, they don't seem like they have a political program necessarily beyond the sort of assertion of black identity and a move towards majority rule. Um, the other element though, is that by the middle of the 1970s, in part spurred by the strikes in Durban that begin in 73, they are beginning to articulate a more practical, as it were, or realized political program. And so you do have a concept known as black communalism that they begin to pick up in the mid 1970s, which is essentially a South African version of Ujamaa from Nyerere's Tanzania. In many senses, actually, they just copy the language from Nyerere and they bring it into South Africa about sort of national ownership of resources, about shared about shared wealth within the community and about drawing on um, African village traditions to help to create this economic, this economic, uh, widespread economic wealth. It's never, it's not really a thing. It's not really a policy. A lot of it is just about defiance. A lot of it is just about we are people who now defy. And I find that to be incredibly politically powerful. And that's a hard thing to pull off, to get a bunch of people to sign up for the act of defiance for its own sake. That's harder to pull off than to get people to sign a petition saying we want X, Y, and Z. So, I mean, yeah, the, the image of, of defiance for its own sake is, is a really powerful one. And I think it's one that actually gives us a nice ability to look at the contemporary moment and unpack what explains black consciousness's popularity. And I think you've already given a little bit of the answer because one immediately thinks of fees must fall, roads must mm -hmm. fall. That whole generation of young people, uh, which I more or less belong to, articulating this idea of defiance in, mm -hmm. in such a captivating way. Everything must fall. Uh, the political order doesn't serve us. It is inegalitarian and it must fall entirely. So, yeah, what explains why black consciousness makes a comeback? And I think it's interesting to to look at. I mean, OK, let me start here. So yesterday I was rereading your article, Dan, for Africa as a country, and it was written in 2012. And I was mm. saying to Sean that this is actually the first time I realized that your article was written prior to Fees Must Fall um, and Roads Must Fall. Is a so, yeah, he's a, he's a prophet. <laughs> um, so why do you think, I mean, why do you think it made the comeback? It seemed when you wrote this article, mm. you could sense that it was making this return. What gave you that mm. sense that it was going to make a comeback and you were proven correct mm. uh, three years later, it did? That's a complicated question, right? Uh, to some extent, 
it's because of the content of black consciousness and this this message of defiance and also that it asserts a heritage for South Africa that is not derived from Europe. And so when you're talking about roads must fall, it's so clear that that is that why that would gain such such power and, and be rearticulated. The other thing I think has a lot to do with the person of Biko. And this is, I, I, when I think about Biko, I think about Biko a lot in the same way that I think about uh, Patrice Lumumba uh, from, from what is now the DRC. Because Lumumba is another figure on whom are projected all these ideals, all these visions of a post-colonial path not taken because it was stolen from him and by extension from the world by the machinations of the American government. In South Africa, you have Biko, right? And Biko's the same. He was stolen from South Africa by the by the by the government, by the apartheid government. And so then, what happens is we don't know what Biko would have done. We don't know where he would have ended up. Sometimes I find myself thinking that Biko would have been kind of in the Tabo and Becky camp of things. Sometimes I find myself thinking that Biko would be in the Malema camp of things. Like there's a lot of, there's elements within his, his archive, as it were, that allow us to think and associate him with specific moments, but we never know. And the non-knowing of it allows him this tremendous, um, there's a tremendous freedom in how we think about Biko and how we use, uh, we use, the, the idea and the memory of Biko. And I think what's really striking, and there's a, another element of this too, is that he is not sullied by association with the contemporary ANC. He never joined like the Hani, ANC. Kind of like Hani. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. He's someone who is above reproach because he doesn't make that transition. It's really notable though, because I mean, and I think part of the reason, and I will push back against the idea that I was in any way prophetic. What I was, was someone who talked to a lot of black consciousness activists of that generation who had known Biko and worked very closely with Biko during the years before 2012, doing my research. And what they all shared in common was a deep unhappiness with how things had played out in South Africa in the subsequent years. And so they, in a sense, are keeping his memory and the critique that he seems to embody, they were keeping that alive. And so I could hear their voices in my ears as I was thinking about, okay, what, how are we using Biko? How are we thinking about Biko um, at this moment in, of political change and possibility in South Africa? Yeah, brilliant. I think that's such a, uh, an emphatic way to conclude, Dan. Uh, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Dan can't be with us throughout the whole period, but we'd love, love, love to have you on again. Have him back. We're going to have him back. This was have great. Yeah. Thank you, guys. We'll talk about clicks. Talk I have about. a lot of stories about clicks, too. Don't worry. <laughs> Dan, I want, you, I want you to hear my joke. I made a joke on Twitter, and it's my classic bad puns, but I, I'd see if you like it, where I tweeted, uh, I said, the EFF is a digital party. All they care about is clicks. <laughs> very good very good and, and you're going to get us more clicks uh, thank you i'll go read that now nerds. thank you thank you right. thank you very much enjoying this so much they so such nerds such nerds <laughs> dan that was great so, that was brilliant that was great yeah all right thank you for having me folks take care so uh thanks once again to dan and i think now is the moment when we can bring on our two other guests who are the youth, as people like to refer to us with hope, 
um, and we we're going to talk to them about myself, excluding myself. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're going to bring in uh, Alex Hotz and Petani Machivandila. Uh, Alex Hotz is an activist and student competing her masters, uh, her MPhil in human rights law at the University of Cape Town. And Patani Majibandila is a Pan-Africanist historian and an activist based in Azania, currently known as South Africa. And if he's not reading historical literature or thinking about the revolution, as everyone should be, by the way, he spends most of his time missing Walter Rodney, as do I, and imagining a world with cap uh, without capitalism. Uh, thank you guys for, for being on the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess uh, a good place to start is uh, we were just talking with Dan about, about Miko and his resonance and fees must fall and roads must fall in 2015 and 2016. Suddenly there was this massive groundswell in his thoughts being revived and being articulated in different ways. Um, yeah, what do you guys think it was about, about 2015 and 2016 that for a lot of this, a lot of this movement, which was still trying to to find its ideological orientation, uh, Miko was the most natural, uh, you know, uh, radical leader to reach for in order to to unpack the contemporary moment and to to explain a way out of it. Anyone can go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I think Alex can start. It's fine. Yeah, it's a no, big question. It is a big question, and I think um, maybe different people will have a different answer. But I think at that particular moment, there'd also been a real shift in student politics at universities um, across the country. And I think um, Black radical thought and um, the Black political tradition um, became an incredibly important in terms of how to kind of deal with some of the liberalism that had really um, infiltrated and permeated um, student politics at that moment, but also really dealt with some of the, the material conditions and things that people were experiencing um, at universities. Um, I thought, I, so for Biko, so Biko in terms of roads must fall was incredibly important in giving um, political direction, not only in terms of, in terms of an ideological direction, but also in terms of how to organize and galvanize young black people at the university. Patani, oh, can I go yeah. ahead? Yeah, go ahead, please. No, yeah, okay. I uh, know. Uh, for me, uh, the question of Biko as being um, the most credible resonance with, with, with the Fallist movement is, is out of the experiences of, uh, of young Black people in institutions of higher learning since uh, the 1994. And there's never been any real changes in, in, in the material conditions of, of Black people. And uh, the moment of of, of road must fall as it started in, in Cape Town is is it, it, it is the moment of reckoning or, or a moment where young black people feel like uh, the universities of South Africa have not uh, radically changed or changed at all from the time of Biko 
um, to the time where we find ourselves in 2014 and 2015, where uh, there's still uh, disparities uh, in uh, along racial lines, clearly, as we were a settler colony and continue to be a settler colony. And Pico had to be uh, the most natural kind of response uh, to the crisis that uh, young people were facing in institutes of higher learning. And that he became a guiding light, uh, an ideological guiding light on understanding the fact that we still remain black and we still find ourselves dispossessed in the land of our forefathers. I think it was also oh, important. Um, I think Biko was also incredibly important in that particular moment to galvanize um, young black people around our blackness. So I think what you have is a lot of so-called colored, um, and I'm just particularly talking about so-called colored um, students, um, finding um, and identifying oneself as, as black. And I think that was incredibly important um, because I think there had been a lot of polarization um, around that um, and it, I mean it still exists right now and that's why I still think Biko is fundamental and I think it's a problem in terms of how American racial politics has um, usurped South African politics around this the fact that we talk about people of color and BIPOC and BAM or whatever the fuck. I think it's in, and it's it's particularly now if you look at what's happening in Aldo's and in other parts of the country, the rise of Khatful Capetonian. But I mean that was an experience that was happening particularly around questions of belonging and identity within the university um, space and questions around indigeneity. So who who has claim over land, who has claim over the space? Um, and and why are dominant discourses around, you know, we deal we we are faced with um, Cecil John Rhodes and Jamison and whichever fucking white person that you had no clue the the relevance in um, in our university space or in our political lives, you know, was you were faced with you um, the institutional culture of the university was one where you were not welcomed. Mm. So I, I have a, I, I want to put something to you. What do you say to people that who would, who would argue, you're going to say like, that, that's sort of a trick question because like Sean's probably thinking that, but well, hold on, <laughs> I have heard this. Um, if the state, the state is, is, is black in South Africa, the ANC is a state. Yes, it's the case that, that white capital still dominates, right? But the state is run by the ANC. The ANC has control over the over the treasury. Uh, the ANC runs the government. The ANC, by the way, also, and Will and I talked about this the other day, the ANC also created a lot of opportunity for black people. A lot of the people who are now universities are kind of the beneficiaries of the ANC's policies of opening up the universities, right? Why is it that the ANC was not the focus of this of this of of of, of these protests of 2015 2017 and even what is still happening in student politics and i just want to add something else to it it was up and again i don't want to you don't want to caricature it but of course it starts off around these symbols 
Um, but at some point, it also picks up on the fact that that education is not free and there's a demand for free higher education. It also links itself up with the um, uh, the struggles of the workers at the universities, you know, the people who clean, who make your food and so on. So, but my question is, is what I'm driving at is like, for Deco, Deco is living in a space in which there's, for one of a better word, it's white supremacy, it's apartheid that is controlling people's lives, that is excluding black people. The, the, the new order is slightly different. Why is it that Pico then still resonates? Why is it that the aim is that the, the object of people's anger is not the fact that the state looks like them? And this includes, I mean, you know, the Minister of Finance, if you want to, if we, you know, if we, the Minister of Finance at that point, I think he was still, he was still Trevor Manuel, right? So it's like, it's this broad-based, what people in South Africa call Pico Black government. Why is that not the object of people's focus and their anger? To ask, a, maybe to, to ask a, a follow-up question or to maybe complicate it a little bit, or uh, there's two, I guess, maybe there's two spheres in which students are, are engaging at this point, right? There's the institution of higher learning itself, um, and that has its own sort of dimensions, its own structural makeup, um, and that one is like, you know, demonstrably you know, well, not across the country, and this is something to talk about later, but in, in, the, in the elite universities at the University of Cape Town at Wits, that's still extremely white. And then there's also the state. Um, what do we think? How did the articulations of, of Biko different in those two different spheres? Or, yeah, that's just something to, to complicate Sean's question a little bit. Mm -hmm. So... So I think the experiences at universities are different, right? Um, so UCT, I don't want to call it a formerly white institution, a white institution, at that period had a white vice chancellor and the entirety of management bar made two uh, people were white. And, and so it made the enemy in that space maybe slightly less complicated and more direct, particularly because um, there was a denialism of the experiences um, that black students were um, facing um, at the university. But I also think, um, and it's I think also a question around strategy and tactic and it becomes a little bit more complicated later on i think particularly in questions around you know when roads must fall um starts to deal with questions around outsourcing and later you know with fees must fall and the struggle for decommodified and decolonial education um and so i think um, particularly why I think Biko is also incredibly important in this particular question is, that, is understanding racism not as, you know, being, um, it's about power, right? Whereas for a long period of time, it was about simple, you know, um, discrimination or basis of like feelings, you know, like, uh, um, and so I think they were, you were giving, um, there was, a greater understanding of what racism is and who could be racist and who couldn't uh, um, be racist. And so I think it was also important 
I mean, it becomes complicated in terms of roads must walk because I think they later on become splits because we are talking about the state and, and what the state is doing or not doing. But I also think we understand that in relation to economic power and political power in this country. And we understand that economic power is not in the hands of the majority of people. And often, you know, even for non is used here to speak about how often what, what the ANC is and the black elites in this country are, is a comprador class and not necessarily um, in control of um, the economy. And we don't see changes in terms of um, land, in terms of economic power and, and, and those types of um, dominance um, in, in the country. And obviously that becomes a little bit more complicated if you, um, in fact, actually not so much because I think Biko talks about, Biko does talk about, okay, Max Price is a white man, we, you know, the enemy is a little bit more clear. But then, you know, if you look at Adam Habib and others, you'd classify them in terms of black consciousness as non-white. Um, and, and so I think, um, I do think at some point the unit it was important to be unified um, and nonpartisan as we tried to uh, to deal with some of the political differences to build um, I wouldn't say a united front but to deal with um, our broad experiences as black students um, at the university. Obviously, that becomes a little bit more complicated when people think that. Zero percent fee increment is is the goal mm. uh, when it's not, and, and, and you know challenging um, um, that and who you know who decided that and who goes back to school and who doesn't go back to school. Mm. Batani, oh, it's, that's a very complex question. To be honest, uh, which mm. you asked about why uh, was the anger not a bit more slided or guided towards the ANC. But you have to think about it this way, that we actually have a dual kind of uh, institution of higher learning thinking in, in the country. We have uh, the so-called formerly white institutions, and then you have uh, the, Bantu, the former Bantu students universities, right? So when 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 you go into an institution like uh, like Best University, where I was at the time of Christmas fall, the majority of us is uh, is black people uh, who are in the institution currently, and but also structurally, uh, it still remains dominated by by white people. When you go into the corridors of of, of faculties, for the majority of the professors are white, administrators are, are white, and that becomes sort of uh, uh, the the first question that we uh, must ask. That twenty three years later, how how has this not changed? How has uh, the, the majority of, of administration in the university remains in uh, in the hands of the uh, of the white white minority, and we find that most black students are still being excluded academically and mostly financially. Those are the, were the questions that that came by. But of course, uh, when you also look into that 23 years after 1994, you also have to question the uh, the commercial bourgeoisie of the ANC. What what have they been doing? What have they done? And uh, I will say that ours was. A marriage of convenience at the time when we were uh, when we were organizing and mobilizing uh, with students that belong to, to SASCO or uh, to the ANC affiliated organizations because 
we knew that at any moment or at any time when we even press even much more uh, when we even press much more or we try to push it outside the the, uh, the campus they will also uh deliberate or they will feel uncomfortable with the fact that they have to confront their motherboard because i remember the day that we marched to uh to the Tuli house actually a day before we uh, we, uh, we went to union building in, in, in kaute it, it it was a very big struggle for us to be able to convince uh to convince uh students that actually let's go and march at uh at Lutuli house but there was no way that they were, they were going to be able to stop that because the, the students asked questions that but clearly 23 years later the ANC has been power and Lutuli house is just across the street why are we not taking this to, to, uh, to Lutuli house and that's there, were, there was no way that they were going to stop uh, stop students because the masses of students were there saying that why are we not going to Lutuli house why are we not going to confront the ANC because they, they are the ones who are seemingly failing us or in power as uh, but realistically they're not in power they're just managing on behalf of uh, uh, uh of the white people who own this, who own this country so there was no at, at the time I, I think it was on the 22nd of october in 2015 that we went to uh to the house and then then when uh the ANC came out uh, i think they, they sent out um they sent out uh where the uh, where the but also uh on the following day when had to go to unions build, uh, union buildings. And then uh, we find ourselves engaged in, well, we're coming from a, a very middle-class university and we are meeting with uh, students who have been protesting for years in formerly uh, black students like, like, like TUT. And uh, when when we come in there, this a sort of like a clash in, in terms of ideas that because the students from other universities perceive Feds students as being better. And in fact, we actually made a very big grand, grand entrance on that day. We arrived two hours later when we when, uh, 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 agreed that we were going to arrive at nine. The university gave us passes and then we came there making a grand stand. And students from Feds wanted to be on the front to lead as if the struggle belonged to them only. And that, that's where the contradiction was because the students from previously black institutions, actually, we've been, we have been in this thing for years. We've been at the beginning mm. of each and every year, at DUT, at TUT, there's always a strike about NESPAS, but our voices are never heard because, well, seemingly we come from a formerly black institution and no one seems to, to care. So, but when uh, the strikes went into UCT and VETS and Stellenbosch and UP, the country seems to be paying, paying more attention to it because of the historic, historical view that uh, these are institutions where intellectuals are, are are produced where reasonable young people are produced but whereas in reality there's never been any change or there's never been a, uh, any radical shift towards making sure that our uh, black students or black people in this country have some level of dignity and through education that is something that we could have attained and uh so our anger it, it, the anger actually is directed to the ANC, but it is difficult because the media focused at vets and uct so it seemed like more uh, the struggle was only about what was happening at Houston. I mean, uh, mostly if you look online or when you check, everything is just centered around feds and UCT, as if they were the only institutions which uh, which were engaged in the struggle. So it becomes more of a question of uh, more than also a racial and a question of class in terms of where you find black students in this country whose voices have not been heard for a very long time. But uh, uh, out and above, uh, we, we knew that, that, that at any moment, 
uh, the, the students that affiliated that were selected towards the ANC were going to betray us because I remember when we came back from uh, from Union Buildings on, on that Friday, uh, what was happening all, all over the weekend, all around, then they went that actually uh, now the struggle is over, we have attained free education. But uh, the students from the left said, actually, no, we were not going there for zero percent. We were actually going to say that we want free education because when we begin, but when we began, the point of mobilization was was zero percent. But of course, dynamics and political things change when we when we were in the picket line, and then when we started seeing actually no hold on, actually the zero percent does not make sense because our end goal is free education, and that's when the clash of ideas started to come between us and the students who were affiliating towards the ANC. So I think we realistically we know that uh, the ANC are the ones who are managing. Uh, on behalf of white people. But uh, when we look at into these things and how where we locate Biko in all of this is that Biko uh, will speak about these people as non-whites, the people who have sold out or have deserted the aspirations of black people mm-hmm. for a, a piece of meal or for a seat in the table of, uh, of white power and white resistance in South Africa. Let me just quickly for clarity before Alex, because I know Alex wants to say something about this. But just for viewers who don't know um, what Patani was talking about, in South Africa, there's something like 20-odd universities. Um, there's four universities who traditionally are considered as liberal universities. These are white English-speaking universities. They are kind of the elite universities. I think everybody in this in this box, in these boxes, have gone to those universities. Then outside of those, there are Afrikaans universities, which were they were kind of allied to the state. And then to the, to the Africana nationalism and kind of making that project work. Stellenbosch, which was now now the University of Johannesburg, used to be known as Rao, the University of Pretoria. And then finally, there was a last set of universities which were mostly established after 1960. So coinciding with that period of Bantu education, separating the separate, it was called the Separate Universities Act, I think, or something like that. And out of that universities, you have UWC, Fort Hare. Well, Fort Hare is older, but it became part of that. And those universities, exclusively i would say or majority of the students are black there and the issues there um, are slightly different from the issues at at the university so that class he's talking about is that class during these protests between students from these different campuses so if you're not just was just for viewers uh, who don't who didn't get all of that kind of inside baseball so alex you wanted to say something quickly yeah i wanted to follow up on something that Pitani said because i think it's interesting um particularly when young people, maybe people who had never been part of political organizing or protesting in the ways in which it was happening in that period, um, were confronted with violence or state violence, right? I think, you know, people thought that maybe one's ANC membership or PYA membership, etc., would protect them from um, that violence. Right. And so I think it was really interesting when we were at Parliament, for example, and we were met with the violence in which we were met with. But also, um, Bladen Zemande comes out to try and. That's um, the Minister of Education. Yeah, the Minister of Education. Eventually, you know, after hours of us being there, tried to come and, you know, salvage the day by, you know, trying to. come and speak to us um, and people kind of through whether you were a member of the PYA or you were a member of Roads Must Fall or whatever 
you know, bottles were thrown. Um, people told him to futek, like we didn't want to listen to what he had to say. So it was, it, it was really interesting because that you, you, as I can imagine as if you were a member of the PYA or Sasco or whatever, that you also had like this, must have had this discomfort, like, you know, yeah, I am, but the, the way in which, you know, me as, I'm not towing the party line, really. And, and, and I'm being met with this violence. And, and to me, it was very disconcerting because one, I think for me, I would have thought, you know, these experience would maybe shift um, one politically to more of a left politics, maybe um, you know, move away from um, the ANC. Um, and in some respects, it really didn't. Um, for some people, like, I think it entrenched some of the um, of of those beliefs, um, which which I thought was I thought was really strange. I couldn't politically understand how one could then you know go back to almost like things have been normal after our lives had really kind of been changed. Mm. Yeah, so Alex, you ask this this very important question and to maybe try and and think about that question in relation to, to Biko and his political thoughts and how we understand him as a figure and individual. I think something that both of you raised is what was the role of class during Fees Must Fall, but also relevant for tonight's show? What is the role of class in Biko's political thoughts? Because when we, for example, understand that, as you were saying earlier, that if you were against the interests of poor and working class interests, in Miko's analysis, you would be anti-black, right? You'd be anti-black, and as such, you would you would not be black, right? But something I still struggle with, and I'm I'm making my mind on this issue, is what do we say about positing a sort of unitary black interest. And then that is able to shift depending on, on who's using it, right? Um, Dan was saying something earlier about how he, he sees many different trajectories for Biko if he was alive uh, and he could be someone who was a follower of Mbeki, someone who's a follower of Malema. He could be a follower of someone who, of anyone really. Um, but I guess my question is, um, well, he he wasn't he wasn't a Marxist, right? But it seems like the his thoughts was really getting interesting, as Dan was saying um, in the late seventies when it started to be centered around these ideas of black communalism and so on and so forth. So why didn't it go in that direction in in this sort of contemporary uh, revival of of Miko's political thoughts? And and why don't we just if we want to talk about class, why not talk about class? Directly, why do you? What do you think is the role that that race plays in that analysis, and and why should it maybe continue to play that role or not? Okay, I think uh, I will go first. Okay, uh, for me, of course, I mean times have changed. Uh, we're not in apartheid now. I mean, so much apartheid as it was in, in the seventies when people was alive, right? And we find ourselves in 2020 having to answer questions around class and race, which, which are very important, actually. But uh, uh, Biko 
did uh, give an assertion to that, although he did not uh, really fully go into detail because, of course, died young. I mean, I'm sure, he, I'm sure if he had, had he lived longer, he would have answered those questions for himself. But right now we can speak about the little that we have from his writing. So the intersection here between race and class is, for me, where Biko speaks about non-whites. It's uh, the people that have uh, are fighting for integration rather than a complete overhaul of the system or a complete overhaul of of of, uh, of white racism in South Africa. Because uh, because even says himself that uh, there is no doubt that in, uh, in South African politics the questions of the question of color was introduced for economic reasons. That's a very important statement that that big right. Uh, in one in one of the, of the chapters, uh, in, I write what I like. So uh, it's it's very important to understand that uh, the questions around class and race they determine and clearly shape the politics that uh, uh, that we are facing today. And you can see around uh, 1975 uh, that uh, the Black People's Convention actually, uh, as Dan said earlier, uh, adopts uh, what they call as uh, uh, black communalism, right? And this is uh, an understanding be, uh, of what kind of economic system uh, do we imagine have after we have defeated, of course, apartheid. I mean, it, was, it, is, it is very important that we also have answers to the kind of economic outlook that uh, that we want to have. And of course, uh, he never he never uh, uh, pronounced himself. Uh, Clearly, as a Marxist, uh, that is that is not uh, that, uh, that is not that is that is not impression. But mm. uh, in today's time, where or how will Biko or how will Biko's writing fit into in, in, into the questions that we are facing today? That we find mm. that uh, after 1994, there's been a certain permeation of the black elites in 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 the evolution of capitalism. And what will Biko's uh, response be to that. I think that become, becomes an intellectual responsibility of us who are living today to be able to find the links between uh, um, black consciousness and also the question of, of class as, as it comes from the Marxist schema or, 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 uh, or classical um, uh, Marxist writings, right? And it becomes very important because we, we know the history of the question of race within the Marxist, uh, the Marxist clique, right? I mean, you are seeing uh, the Communist Party of, of, of South Africa in entry. You are striking and say that they are fighting only for white workers. What kind of nonsense is that? You see, and we, you, you you find that uh, there's there's been a serious pushback in terms of the question of for self determination. Black people who find themselves flirting or working with communist ideas. It's, it's the very same reason why part more goes and writes uh, pan Africanism or communism. Right? It's, it's, it's the same very reasons why. The Africanists were pushed out, out, out of the ANC in the late 50s because there has been um, a hijack of the ANC after the 19, of 1949 by the white communists within the communist part of South Africa who actually do not understand that, uh, want to acknowledge that the black people in South Africa are the real owners of the land and they are the rightful owners of this country, whereas they want to uh, bring us into a very narrow class reductionism. Uh, uh, a position. Well, we're not deciding that the question of class exists, but uh, I mean, Lenin wrote in 1920 the question on the national thesis that uh, the struggle in in the colonies is going to take a form of a, a, a nationalistic kind of outlook because we see ourselves as a 
There's the white people, and then there's the black people. Of course, they have all the resources. We don't have the resources, but that, that was at the time. But in today's time, things have become even much, even more and more complicated. So it becomes the international responsibility of us to go through this, uh, these contradictions that we are able to locate the, the question of race in today's time. Because someone said that race does not matter anymore today. Only class matters because you have a Ramaphosa who is a billionaire or a Mzepa who is a billionaire. But when in reality, when you look through, through the thick of things, that there's only few black people who, who have been integrated in part of the elites. And the masses of, or, or the majority of the African people are still down and below. So the question of race and class is still very much important in today's time. That's why Biko even becomes even much more important because he spoke about the question that we're not fighting for integration. We're fighting for the complete overhaul of the system. And uh, this, uh, the white racist system that is given power primarily because of the interests of, of economic benefit of, of, of white people. So where we find ourselves today is that uh, it, it is, it's not going to be easy to mobilize the way that become mobilized uh, in terms of the fact that there are us who are black and there are those who are white on the other side. We have to see through these contradictions and find ourselves in a position where we are, we are able to say, actually, this is how we are going to mobilize. And of course, we are, we are going to have to leave some black people behind who have made themselves the custodians of white interests and have become strong enemies of black people. Those are the non-blacks, no, so, I mean the non-whites, as people spoke about them, that we will have to leave behind in our quest uh, for liberation of black people in this country. Alex? Yeah, I think this is highly contested, actually, even in, term, in, in terms of Biko, um, because I think, you know, the question of particularly around Marxism and whether I always ask, I mean, we're asking the question um, whether race can also be, whether race is the base. Um, and I think um, for me, the question I think that Pitani raises around um, not wanting to, you know, Biko really um, talks about and critiques um, the fact that, you know, we shouldn't be taking over the colonial state. We should be, and I think what's even more interesting um, about Biko, I think in his assertion that, you know, we shouldn't be taking over a colonial state, is, um, is about creating a different type of society and something that, which I think is different to Marxists generally around what the society would look like, challenging the notion of a state, you know, as a colonial um, construction. And so I think um, in terms of class, um, these contradictions were, were part and parcel of roads must fall and fees must fall. Um, there was, there were many people who had to, you know, really contend with privilege in one way or another around one's middle classness, um, and and how you know, um, in this conversation we have different. And I I'm, I want to also raise this point about gender, because it's something that I think even in this discussion hasn't come up yet, um, which should around um, the legacy of Biko by PCM um, more generally. 
But I, I, I just want to go back to something which is interesting um, that Dan had raised earlier around Biko not being sullied by um, his counterparts, you know, um, like Mandela had been um, in the, I mean, you know, Chris in the ANC or what. I think it's interesting because at UCT, um, the vice chancellor was Dr. Mampela Rampela. And it was under her vice chancellorship um, that um, outsourcing was introduced, right? And, um, and in fact, if you look at many of the so-called counterparts of, of Biko, whether it's the Barney Pitianas, etc., I don't really think we can talk about whether they're actual counterparts or not, but how they position themselves in society now and, and, and the role that they're playing in, um, in, as elites in this country and how they want to dictate that people should organize and what they should struggle around, I think is deeply, deeply um, discomforting. Um, and I hope, I know, I feel I know, Biko would be rolling in his, in his grave because I think, you know, <sighs> I've deviated from the question around class, but I think even questions around violence um, is something we also haven't spoken about today. But that that was a fundamental question in in how we organized um, in Roads Must Fall um, and Fees Must Fall, um, which many people, you know, would say in the same ways in in and like you can link this to the clicks um, discussion. You know, the same, you know, the same people who would say, like, how could you um, shut down a university? How could you burn paintings or all of these things? There was, you know, similar, um, similar um, discussions at the moment that I felt in, in many ways were deeply anti-Black. Um, so let me try and get back to the question of class. I think it was really important and there were many moments also in the post one particular moment in the post 94 moment and and us thinking about um the legacy of roads and white supremacy at uct was maricana and what where one could see very visibly racial capitalism in this country still is deeply, deeply rooted and embedded in um, in the economy and how the society functions. And so when you saw the massacring of workers, they weren't white workers, they were black workers. And you, we had to, in this space, confront also, you know, um, question, you know, why class why we had to be anti-capitalist. The question around decommodification um, was, was anti-capitalist. And, and when you talk about black communalism, that is looking for an alternative to a capitalist society and looking at an African alternative to a capitalist society. And, and um, I think that's incredibly, incredibly important. Okay, so we have a we have a thanks for that, Alex. I mean, in in a way, by the way, you actually did sort of touch on class, as you as you said, moving away from class. But then you would when you are sort of discussing Barney and and Mampella and so on. 
But um, there's a question from a viewer, and I think uh, producer Antoinette will put that on the screen in a minute, but I will just start reading it. So uh, there's a question by uh, somebody watching on YouTube, Inga Salo, asking, does it matter if the enemy is black or white, if they uphold anti-black practices, anti-black pra practices? How does Biko help us think about this? Any, either of you can answer that. Oh, okay. Uh, I think... Uh, oh, this, this is, yeah, okay. You can go first, Alex. No, 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 go first. Oh, okay. Uh, I think uh, the question that does it matter if the enemy is black or white? I mean, the enemy here is capitalism, right? Which finds itself in the colonial situation of South Africa, expresses itself through racial capitalism. So uh, we have to we, we have to be able to see through these contradictions and be able to get to the ultimate end goal of what brings our oppression, what brings uh, what, what brings the fact that as black people, we are still undignified in the world. So uh, it does not matter if uh, uh, the enemy is black or white or if, uh, if or if when they uphold anti-black practices. I think what matters uh, for me uh, is that at, the, at the, the end goal is liberation of black people. And how do we do that? At the time, when Biko was still alive, of course, uh, it was important that they band together as, as black people because it was clearly a racial capitalist state where white people were benefiting and black people were not benefiting. And it was important that, that we organized through, uh, uh, through the question of, of mobilizing black people. But in today's time, as I've said, things, uh, things have changed. And uh, the way that things, uh, uh, things have changed, uh, the ideas of Biko are not being embedded in our society. In, I think, in fact, every September, every year, Biko is drawn out from the dustbin of history, not to empower his ideas, but to blend him into the neo-colonial project of 1994. Uh, this is, and this is done deliberately to further cause confusion amongst our already uh, politically dispossessed or demobilized people. So at the end of the day, what we have to confront is the questions that give rise to, uh, that give rise to uh, uh, racial prejudice or our racial oppression. And we have long identified that that's capitalism. And therefore, in today's time, drawing out of the way Biko left and, and his contemporaries, how do we mobilize to make sure that we are able to defeat that? Alex, would you like to answer that as well? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I want, just want to give an example of what happened um, at UCT. So at some point, um, Max Price and his cronies um, realized or felt that, okay, there's a new strategy to deal with um, these black students and their demands. Let us use um, black academics or some black people in management to negotiate or to kind of say, okay, um, look, we are transforming, we are thinking about what you're saying. These are people who have similar experiences to you. And um, it was a tactic that really didn't work because we were able to see that the interests were of upholding, you know, white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchy at the university. Um, and, it, it, you know, it was an instance where we, we called them, in fact, colonial administrators um, at the university. 
And so I think, you know, it is a little bit more difficult. And I think we must be politically honest about that um, in South Africa at the moment. Things are incredibly um, polarizing at the moment. And so um, you, you are finding it, whether it's at UCT or in other spaces, difficult to say, you know, um, even though you're a black person or your, your beliefs, the politics that you are implementing and entrenching um, in whatever space, whether it be in the state and elsewhere, is anti-black. Neoliberalism is anti-black. The fact that people must live in squalor in this country with deep inequality is anti-black. And, and the minute we begin to say that, I think it also deals with some of the um, the the kind of or where people want to see it as a gray area in terms of oh they're black so how can it be um, how can their practices or beliefs be anti-black? Um, but again, I think Biko speaks about this in terms of being classified as as non-white. Yeah, thanks so much for for that. Uh, there's another another question uh, that Antoinette will put up on the screen, and it's from Miska Warrior. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. So, so clearly the organizers, I don't know if they're referring to us, do not want to discuss gender and sexuality concerning uh, because we cannot still assume unitary ideas in a pluralized world. So, I mean, apologies uh, for that, but I think Alex was trying to take us there. And Alex, you should you should uh, continue to take us in that direction. And as always, this is a discussion that's limited by time. But what of gender and sexuality in Biko's political thought? Um, is there anything? And if not, how do we develop an analysis of gender and sexuality using the tools that he's given us? And just to add to that, the, the questioner also asked that we, the, the, this viewer, Miska, also asked that we would we should ask Alex to comment because Alex alluded to it on black nationalism and gender discourse, like that kind of tension um, around that. Yeah. And and viva Alex Hutz, as Justin Davies says. <laughs> you want to go ahead? Um, so I think this is a very, very important question. And it was fundamental, actually, in Words Must Fall. Um, many people will say that this question those naysayers, whatever, um, would say that this this created division um, within the movement. But um, it is particularly because people did not want to grapple with this problem that it became divisive. Um, and the question, um, even the clips question actually um, highlights the problem of or the contradictions within nationalism and the question of gender and feminism, for example. So you have people who are going to protest that clicks and say um, they, they were incredibly racist and they embarrassed and humiliated black women and our hair, right? But it's the same people who are then saying, yeah, but why do um, black women wear weeds why do um, black women relax their hair? All of this fucking misogyny and misogynoir. Um, and, and, and to jump in quickly, who are defending 
uh, a journalist being shoved and harassed by by EFF party members. Well, we can we can get to that as well around the question of consent and um, and harassment. But I think the question of feminism and particularly roads must fall the question of black radical feminism and intersectionality was incredibly important in the political ideology of the movement and questions around how women black women in particular have been oppressed um, and marginalized within movement um, space but in society in general so when we talk about the bcm for example we don't talk about the black women who were politically organizing and shaping the ideas uh, of the black consciousness movement right we talk about the men and it and the point for me is i sometimes do not think or we really have to there's a book which i think is really interesting um but i, I won't get to that i really do think the question around gender has been completely sidelined and feminism has been seen as something that is um, anti-black um, men, for example, within our movement space. And I think that is, that is lazy and I think it is unwanted and just misogyny actually, because we're talking about a system when we talk about patriarchy, it's a system that not only affects women, but it affects men. How men in South African society, particularly black men under apartheid and colonialism, have been infantilized. And um, the paternalism of white men and white women um, in this country. And I also think that's important that when we're talking about this, we're talking about the role of white women and how um, the the kind of the tears and um to kind of you know to take away the guilt um or their own, own roles in white and which um white supremacist capitalist patriarchy operates in this country um and elsewhere um i also just there's something and, and, and that's why a lot of what we did in Rose Must Fall was to say, to say black women are organizing, black women are thinking, and, and we're talking feminism and the oppression of women that's happening in this country, the violence that women are, and queer people are experiencing cannot be erased. It is something that we have to address if we want to reimagine and think about an egalitarian society. So I know that we, we we actually going way over our regular time, and it's partly because the discussion is so is so good. I mean, I have to commend Dan and both of you. This has been great. But I want to ask like, a final question, um, and I, I think we'll have we we're going to have to have a separate show where we're going to talk about gender and black um, black nationalism or nationalist struggles and kind of unpack that. I, I really feel that that's a we actually we're just going to put that in our schedule. And let that happen and, and Alex hopefully you will come back for that here's a question that I want to ask just to end because we, we gotta we also gotta go home I know it's late in South Africa and yeah where I am it's a you know kids are gonna come out of school at some point so 
Here's my question. The similar question we asked to Dan, and may, I think I think Will will probably want to add to this. Same mm. question we asked to Will, which is when you have the 50-50 vision, was it 40-40? I don't know what it is. When you look in, when you look in from when you look back at something, and with with Biko and Black and the BPM, we actually uh, we had quite a time to look back. You know, we we happened in the mid 70s, and then we could read onto Biko and on BCM. Um, we could reinterpret, etc. As, as Dan phrased it, we write what we want to, um, and we don't know yet about the effects of that period of 2015, 2017, because many of you are still either studying, you are entering. Some of you are. are there's some people now in Parliament, right? Who are MPs? Uh, yeah. There are people who've entered the professions. So it's going to take a while. And so the effects of something, and I think Alex was showing this. We're now seeing where many of those people ended up. They run universities, Adam Habib. They, they are the president of council, Bani Pichana. They run a university like Mampela. Can we, is there a way that we could like judge what, what, what are the major victories that came out of, from that period of 2015, 2017? And I know I'm starting another program right now, but I'm not gonna try and do that. So if you could like, Make it like short and sweet so that we could get out of here. But I really wanted to ask this. Can we judge? How can we judge? Let me put it like this. How can we judge 2015 to 2017? How can we judge that movement? Was it a success? Um, or is it too early to ask that question? Well, I don't know if you want to add something to that. The only thing, the only thing I want to add is that the phrase shown is actually 2020 vision. And I think Thank the you. fact that we threw that around so much has something to do with why this year has been so crap. It's just been like <laughs> you guys for saving time. <laughs> no, go ahead and answer the question. Maybe I should add one other small thing to it because there's also partly this question about the end of the ANC's project. Like people were saying, like the ANC's project ran aground and something else should emerge. So, how do we judge that period? And just a sort of 1A is there, is this pointing for us to something, to, to something else? like another kind of politics. The 2015 to 2017 point us to something else, a different kind of politics that we can imagine in a place like South Africa. Yeah, to to sort of frame it in the way Patani was putting it beautifully, I mean, the youth have an intellectual responsibility. How do we, how do we realize it and yeah. what is that intellectual responsibility? Perfect. Okay, I think I will go first. Oh, the 2015 to 2017 project and where are we now? I mean, as you have said, uh, Sean, some have entered parliament, some have and, uh, left their space, and we don't know where they are. I mean, people are leaving and sort of like have moved on from uh, that time. So I think for me, uh, what the 2015 project managed to do was to awaken uh, the youth of this country to ask, make us ask difficult questions that are we really liberated? Where are we as a country? And to break the so-called apathy of the bond freeze that uh, we are having it easy and actually putting it out there to the country that actually uh, there's nothing there's nothing that, that has changed. And it's brought uh, into a new politic that, uh, that, uh, that is very important. I mean, it has managed to locate Biko into, into 2015 or 2020 as we are in today. Where, where, where does Biko fit in, in today's time? Where, uh, what kind of future do we imagine 
for the country. So it becomes very, very important that uh, although we did not uh, achieve a lot of, uh, of the victories that we had intended to, uh, to achieve, of course, the ultimate goal was free education. That has not been achieved, but it, 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 it for, for me, it shows, it, it shows that uh, the cry for revolution or, or, the, or, or, or the, the, uh, the passion that the young people have in this country of true and ultimate liberation uh, was kind of near um, uh, or kind of uh, something that uh, the youth that uh, were uh, part of the politics in 2017 kind of made us realize that where we are, we're not liberated. I mean, we managed to bring into very important questions, the questions are around land, the questions are around free education, the question about, about uh, the structuring of, of higher education in our country, and most importantly, the question that uh, Alex was answering, the questions around gender and sexuality. Uh, it, it became a, a, a very a very important conversation that was happening within us and outside, uh, and outside the community. So. For me, uh, what 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 the important lessons that we can draw from there is that uh, although the students can be able to spark the revolution and be able to see the kind of contradictions that we have in society, we cannot do it alone. We cannot do it only in in institutions of higher learning. That's one of the biggest harsh lessons that that uh, that we we have came to learn. That I mean, the whole country, the whole country was watching us and they had seen that they support the students, but. There was a failure to translate the struggles that we were speaking about in universities to outside communities. Although in some places there were a certain level of, of organization that tried to happen, but it did not translate to the whole uh, university population where it became kind of a national problem where we are able to link our struggles in the universities uh, uh, with, uh, with the struggles of the, of the workers and the working class in, in our communities because we are members of the community first before we are students. And it also became, became the same thing that happened with Marikana is that the whole country is watching, oh, it's a mine worker strike, but whereas it is a strike, it is a struggle for black people, it's a struggle for black people's uh, dignity. And ultimately, everything that is wrong with this country, which is the, 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 primary, <laughs> the primary of that, which is uh, uh, the question of land dispossession. So it becomes very important that when we look back into these three years that we had, uh, the questions that we, we must ask is that, is that how how are we able to how are we able to link both the struggles happening in the universities and the struggles happening outside the universities and post COVID? I mean, it's it's definitely going to be a, a bloodbath of jobs. It's going to uh, it's, it's it's going to be difficult. It's it's not going to be easy at all after this pandemic. And then how do we translate the struggles that are happening in the institutes of higher learning where there's intellectual uh, work that's been produced and thoughts that have been produced, but how do we translate them that they don't only end in the corridors of higher institutions of institutes of higher learning, but they end up in the communities where we come from and translate into a real struggle that can happen. But uh, certainly so, there's been a party that has been able to capture the imagination of the youth in this country. We saw them last week at clicks. Just one tweet, the youth are in the street. I, be I believe that maybe if we can just have one tweet and say that, uh, for, uh, for example, before this, there were uh, comrades who come from the uh, uh, from the fallist generation that they walked from Johannesburg uh, to Stellenbosch, right? So comrades uh, saw that there was a Joseph to Stellenbosch uh, movement that lasted uh, from June up until now, but there was no support from uh, 
the comments from the EFF also because they were members of the EFF in, uh, in that struggle of Stellenbosch. But how then uh, do we, because uh, the EFF has captured the imagination of the youth in this country and they, they, uh, they have, they, they have the, the mass, but uh, are they really interested in pushing forward the struggles that we're, that, that, uh, that we're facing or uh, they're just taking us for a ride? I think that's, those are the questions that, that we need to ask from now on, on how do we link the struggles happening in the universities to the uh, political relevance of the EFF in today's time? Because you cannot denounce the fact that they are very relevant in today's country and everyone looks at them when something happens in the country. But uh, maybe, they, maybe they, they just need a little push towards the left where we can be able to clear out these contradictions and be able to uh, ultimately uh, usher a new era in, in South African politics. Alex, do you want to go quickly? Because, yeah, you, you want to quickly answer that big question. Yeah, I think firstly, it brings back the question around feminism and gender and sexuality because we have to ask ourselves as black people, what is the liberation, what is justice, and what is a, a free society going to look like? And can we be free if all black people are not free? Um, and that to me is a fundamental, um, fundamental question. Um, I also think, you know, what was incredibly important for me in Rhodes Muscle, and I think, you know, you can see the differences or some of the um, the differences between where people were organizing or how people were organizing at universities during these mass war is that many of us uh, were calling wanting revolution. I think um, we were not happy to settle with a zero percent increment. We were not satisfied with it. It was if one thought that it was just about the statue then you didn't understand what the movement was about. If one thought it was just about a 0% increment, then it was funda it, you, you didn't understand. It was about fundamentally changing um, the society that we are living in. And so I actually want to go back to a quote um, that's in Biko Lives, which is actually a quote taken from Frank Talk um, in 1984, which I think is really important about this, that the 2015 to 2017 moment, with, which says, Biko lives, two words slashed across a ghetto wall. A phrase that haunts the nights of South Africa's rulers, reactionaries and opportunists of every stripe hope and pray that it will disappear under a rain of blood and the whitewash of reform. But it remains bold and powerful, not a tired and worn out slogan, but a battle cry of a generation whose hopes and aspirations are for revolution and, and end to all exploitation and oppression. And I think that fundamentally um, describes this, that moment for us as young black people, where we are saying, you know, we want change and we demand change and we are going to be, um, we are going to be in struggle. And I think Petani makes an important point which I think was a big challenge for us, is how do we move from being in the university to being on the ground outside of the university in local struggles, in national struggles of all black people, of working class people, of poor people. And, and, and I think that is fundamental. 
and and to make the linkages between roads must fall abashale basem jondolo um when we're talking about no to the right to say no to mining, mining. um in amadiba we are making the links because we are fundamentally wanting to challenge white supremacist racist um capitalist patriarchy in this country but more broadly and to make the links globally because i think that is also a fundamental question when you talk about black lives matter black lives matter everywhere all black lives matter everywhere and so when you for me you know i'm also thinking about what's happening um in the us around struggles of black black lives matter and also how you know celebrities or um have you surfed the narrative around um which is not necessarily anti-capitalist which has shifted the question around abolition um not even to defund the police but to community policing etc and i think when we make those global links that are anti-capitalist and anti-racist um and and feminist um and pro the ecological struggle that is uh, what young people are galvanizing around and i think will make change in the world and in this country in particular on that note which is beautiful poetic i love that thing you read also alex um thank you patani thank you alex thank you to dan who had to unfortunately leave and to my co-host will and our producer internet i'm going to leave you with something that the American political scientist Adolf Reed once wrote about Malcolm X when he said because we're talking here about somebody who's long gone now that Malcolm X was just like the rest of us a regular person saddled with imperfect knowledge human frailties and conflicting imperatives but nonetheless trying to make sense of his very specific history trying unsuccessfully to transcend it and struggling to push it in a humane direction. I think we can say the same about um Steve Biko. So thank you very much. This was a great program. This was a great way to relaunch. We normally go 1 hour but we we're we're edging up to the 2 hours. And I thank her. <laughs> yeah, it's just long. We can't see now but I want to thank her for her patience and for um managing us through this process. So great program. This is a great way to set us off and I want to thank the two of you for helping us make that thank happen. you so much thank yeah. you very thank very you. much yeah thank you congrats thank you congrats tell your friends to now tune in we need we're going to leave the program there on the on the on the different pages for a minute so people can um view it again yeah but anyway thank you very much thank well, you thank you thank you